0: All right, you know, we love to tell stories around here because we're convinced that God is writing his story through your story, you know that, right? God is writing his story in the world through your story that he's telling. And you know, we didn't want Arnie to tell a story so much so you could hear about his accident and how he's responding to that. We wanted you to hear Arnie's story because it's the story of someone who, as he said, probably like a lot of us, believed life was about us, that we were kind of at the center of the story. We were looking for some things. We figured we might find our way to get those things. But at the end of the day, what we find is that when we surrender to God and say, our story is for you, like I'm here for you, that's what I'm here for, that he begins to work out our stories in such a way that brings joy, hope, satisfaction, uh, and that sense of like, oh, I've actually like begun to understand what this whole thing is about. So if you see Arnie, shake his hand, give him a hug, tell him thanks for sharing his story. It's not easy to get up here and share your story, right? Uh, And so just, you know, every time we tell one, I'm just so reminded that God is on the move in and through you as a church. And I love that. Uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40 today. We're continuing our series. And let me pray for us before we do that. And then I invite you to open your Bibles and we'll look together at the word. Father, your people have gathered now um, probably with varying degrees of expectation about what you might do and how you might instruct But really at the core of that, Lord, is that we've gathered to have our minds and our hearts lifted to see you, an incomparable God. To have our thinking lifted higher about you, to have our hearts and affections lifted higher in our feelings about you. That's what we've come for. And I just readily acknowledge, Holy Spirit, that's a work you have to do. I cannot, through eloquence or wisdom or prepared speech, say anything that fully captures how amazing you are. And we need a higher view of you. We need you to be bigger in our sights, bigger than our troubles, bigger than the things that we love more than you. They don't compare to you. So Holy Spirit, pray now, empower me to speak truth, but also, Holy Spirit, Take your word, plant it in our hearts, and do what only you can do, which is to stir us up and give us a sense that goes beyond words, really, of who you are and how great you are. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself, that you are a God who reveals. You are beyond our comprehension, and yet you reveal things about yourself to us, and we want to capture every bit of it capture everything you would reveal about yourself. We want to know. And at the same time, also believe and know that you are beyond us. We will never fully understand all that you are in this life, which makes us wait eagerly for you to come back. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in that word. It is alive. Now take and have your way with us. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, as I said, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 40. So I have been excited to get to this section of Isaiah. If you've been with us, you've been walking through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and we are turning a corner now. Uh, We are getting into what is many consider, and I would certainly consider, one of the greatest sections in all of Scripture. Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 are so deeply rich that you are... I mean, buckle up, because you're about to go for a good ride, all right? So Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Now, we've been on this journey through Isaiah, so let me, this is just a good moment for me to kind of uh, catch us up a little bit. And some of you might be joining us for the first time, so hopefully this will be helpful to you. Now, remember, okay, the book of Isaiah, the major theme in the entire book is this. Isaiah presumes that our major problem in all of life is that we have too small a view of God. He says, your God is too small. That is essentially the guiding theme and message of the entire book. He is trying to say God is bigger than you think he is. He is massive and beyond comparison. He is worthy of all your affection. He's worthy of your greatest thoughts and he's higher than your highest thoughts. Everything about him is majestic and good. Isaiah assumes that any problem we have is really derived from that theological problem. That our view of God is too low. Right? If I'm greedy, it's because I don't understand that God owns everything, and he's generously given me some things. If I'm greedy with my time, my talents, my treasure, if I'm greedy with any of those things, I'm greedy because I don't ultimately have a high enough view of God, right? If I have a thankless heart, if I'm not grateful, the reason is because I don't see that God owes me nothing, that God is completely free and owes no one anything. He is a God who just by the sheer freedom of his will chooses to give good things to people. Does not owe them anything. As if we could call upon God and say, you must do this. No one can ever say of God, you must. Do you know that? If we are thankless in our hearts, it's because our view of God is too low and et cetera, right? It goes on and on. If we're this, it's because our view of God is too low. If we're that, it's because our view of God is too low. That's what Isaiah has been trying to drive home through this entire book and will continue to. Now, in the first 39 chapters, remember that our historical context was the nation of Judah and Isaiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah and they are under threat from a number of nations around them, primarily the nation of Assyria, who is this great world power. (coughs) <coughs> and so as those threats surround them, the prevailing message of the first 39 chapters is God saying to his people, trust me, trust me. I know things look bad, but trust me. I'm bigger than the army that is at the gates. And so we've been seeing again and again and again. And you've, if you've been here, you've been hearing me say again and again and again, God is saying, trust me. God is saying, trust me, right? Which always you know, like sort of, Presents a predicament to a preacher because you tend to want to say something and then say something else, right? And every week I go back to the text, and guess what the text is telling me to tell you? Trust me. Trust me, God is saying. Trust me, right? Always reminds me of the old joke I heard when I was really young, before I was like I was in high school. I wasn't a preacher at all, right? About the about the preacher who preached the message, and it was phenomenal. And everyone in the congregation was like, Pastor, that was amazing. This is the best sermon I've ever heard. And he's like, okay, you know, thanks. I'm glad it was meaningful to you, right? It's, that, by the way, is weird. Like, great sermon, we never know how to respond to that, right? Like, yay. You know, it's like, that was the Lord. There's another joke where a pastor says, that was the Lord, and the, and the elderly woman in the congregation goes, it wasn't that good. <laughs> right, so this pastor, he preaches the message, and, and everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. Next week, everyone shows up, same message. I mean, word for word, same message. And everybody's like, That was good last week, good again this week, pastor. Good job, I guess. I don't know why you did it, but it was great, you know, whatever. They come back the third week. It's the same message. And now they're starting to get a little bothered because they're like, come on, let's move on to some other things. They're like, pastor, it's a fine message. But three times in a row, really? And he says, when you start living it, I'll stop preaching it. (laughs) Right? And that's true for me, right? God, when he repeats something, why does he repeat it? Because he knows we need to hear it. So chapters one through 39, he kept telling us again and again, trust me, trust me. Trust me, right? And so my job was to get up here every week and say what? Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Because we forget, right? And I'm like, Lord, can we move on? He's like, no, they forgot this week again. And so did you. So tell them again. So that's the first 39 chapters, right? Now remember Isaiah's writing and those chapters, they end with this amazing, amazing moment, this great deliverance. Where God's people, the army of Assyria now is literally, they're not like off in the distance. They are at the gates. They've surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They've conquered many of the cities of Judah already. And so Hezekiah, the king, he's, he's fearful and he doesn't know what to do. And he, he makes a great choice. He calls upon the Lord and God delivers them. He rescues the nation. He literally slays hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers right outside their walls. Right? I mean, it's, it's the greatest deliverance that's ever been accomplished in any, um, of any army at any time in any place. I mean, it's amazing. They didn't raise a sword. And then the very next chapter, right, you would expect that if the message had been, trust me, trust me, trust me, and then God works this great deliverance, what, what would you think would happen, right? The, the next moment would be like, oh, we're gonna trust you. Like, clearly, this is a great choice. We're gonna trust you. And the very next chapter, right, the very next chapter, it's like as if to say the next day, right? some envoys from Babylon show up and Hezekiah's like, you know what would be a great idea is if we show them how much money we've got as if we earned all this and then what we'll do is see if we can't make an alliance with them, probably is what they're seeking because, you know, it'd be a good, they're a rising world power, let's make an alliance and it's the exact opposite of what God's been saying to do all the time. So chapters one through 39 end with this really depressing moment. I mean, really depressing, right? Where Hezekiah should trust the Lord, the people should trust the Lord and they and they. They have this interaction with Babylon and God sends Isaiah and Isaiah says, because you have not trusted me, because you trusted in your own strength, your own money, your own power, because you've trusted in alliances, I'm now gonna deliver you over to Babylon. That nation, the envoys that were just here, the representatives that were just here looking at all your gold, they're gonna come back and they're gonna take it all and they're gonna take you too. Everybody's going, right? But then he says, but it won't happen in your day, it will happen basically to your children and to their children. And Hezekiah's response is one of the saddest responses in all of scripture. Awesome, as long as it doesn't happen to me. That's his response. That's how chapter 39 ends. So now, get this. If you're reading Isaiah, and you were just to sit down and say, I'm gonna start at chapter one, I'm gonna read to chapter 66, I'm just gonna read the whole book in a sitting. If you did that, when you got to chapter 39, what you should feel is an immense depression. It's just this weightiness of like, oh, No matter what he does, we don't trust him. No matter what he does, we don't get it. And then you turn the page to chapter 40 and you find something completely unexpected. The first word God says is, Comfort my people. I am going to comfort my people. I mean, you expect to find, you still don't get it. More discipline is coming, more judgment is coming. And you turn the page and you find this amazing word of deliverance. Now, here's what's happened between chapter 39 and chapter 40. If in chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is writing to people who lived when he lived, now he's still writing while he's alive, but he's writing as if he's transported and he's talking to people who live 150 years after him. The people, the very people who will be the, essentially the ones who experience now what he had had to say to Hezekiah in chapter 39 all your ancestors will be deported to the nation of Babylon and they will live in exile. They will live as slaves. That's what's going to happen. Now that has happened. Isaiah is writing as if that has happened and he's gonna speak specific prophetic words. He's gonna name specific kings who are gonna come and do things. He's gonna name them by name 150 years before they even exist. He's gonna say, this is what will happen. This is who will do it. this it This is how it will be done. That's what's gonna happen in chapters 40 through 55. That's essentially, now, if before, right, in chapters one through 39, the primary theme was God says, I'm going to discipline and judge my people uh, so that they might be shaped into my image. But ultimately, my ultimate purpose is the triumph of my mercy, right? And those moments of the triumph of his mercy in chapters one through 39, they were like little embers of hope. They were like little hot embers of hope. It wasn't a raging fire. It was just these moments that we'd find throughout the chapters where he would say, it's coming, mercy is my purpose, but right now you're under my hand of discipline and judgment. I'm purifying you, and I know how to do that. If that was the case, now we turn to chapter 40 through 55, and those embers of hope about his redemptive work and his mercy are now gonna become a raging fire, and they are going to fill the fireplace and warm the house. We are going to be invited now in chapters 40 through 55 to come in out of the cold and warm ourselves at the fire of God's incomparable majesty and his outpouring of mercy and grace and redemption. Now, does that sound good? A little better? So that's what chapter 40 through 55 are gonna be about. Now, what's interesting is, again, we're transported 150 years into the future here, and Isaiah is talking And chapters 40 through 48, the first eight chapters of this section are essentially going to be like a trial because what's gonna happen is God's people who are living in exile are going to say to God, you have forgotten us. That's the accusation they're going to make. They're gonna put God on trial. They're gonna say, you've forgotten us. Either, either, and we've all done this, right? Either you can't do anything, maybe the gods of Babylon are stronger than you are, or you don't want to do anything. Either you can't or you won't. Anybody ever been there with the Lord? Why am I under, like right? Before, if it was hard to trust God when the enemy was at the gates, how do you trust him when the enemy has conquered you and taken you off to be a slave? That's essentially the question of of this section. And so look at verse, in fact, look at chapter 40, look at verse 27, because this is essentially the question that frames this whole section in verse 27 of chapter 40 says, why do you say, this is God speaking, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. My right is disregarded by my God. In other words, what they're saying is, you have forgotten us. That's essentially their accusation. And what God is gonna do in these chapters now is he's going to respond to them. And he's going to say, I have not forgotten you. In fact, I'm at work doing something bigger for you than you could have possibly fathomed. Something bigger and better for you than you ever knew. You think you're forgotten. I'm telling not only are you not forgotten, there is a work being done on your behalf that is going to be so good that when you see it, you will know not only that you weren't forgotten, but that I was working the entire time. The entire time they're going to look and they're going to say they're going to see the evidence of their circumstances and see those circumstances evidence that God has forgotten them. And God's going to say, not only is it not evidence I haven't forgotten you, it's evidence that I was at work behind the scene the entire time. You should see it as me being at work. This exile that you're in is essentially here to serve two purposes. The first one is that you're going to learn what my true servant is supposed to look like. You're gonna be refined by this exile that you're in. And you're gonna learn the kind of servant that I want you to be, my people. And so he's gonna share that with us. But then the second thing the exile is meant to show us in chapters 40 through 55 is that the kind of servant you need to be is not a servant you can actually be. It is beyond you. And so I'm going to tell you now, this is where we get these beautiful prophecies in Isaiah chapter 49 through 55 about a servant who would come. And he would deliver a people, but in a way no one expected because rather than being a conquering king, he would be a suffering servant. And he would come and he would lay down his life. And when he did so, when he suffered in perfect obedience as the perfect servant of God, when he did that, it would give the right for all people to become the kind of servant that they should have been all along. Brilliant, amazing prophecies about our King Jesus. The declaration that Isaiah 40 through 55 makes, and in particular 49 through 55, what the declaration that it makes is this. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And where you and I have failed, guess what? Jesus has succeeded. Now, that's chapters 40 through 55. So this is where we get to all those beautiful prophecies, but now that brings us to Isaiah chapter 40, which is our text for today, and I just want us to look at that because what we're saying is essentially that there's this accusation that God's people have been forgotten. I mean, I wonder, how many of you felt like it? Somewhat, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you felt like that you've been forgotten by God, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know, that you're like, you know, where is he? This is a word for you because God is gonna do something now in Isaiah chapter 40. It's gonna be his first word to his people who think that he has been forgotten, that they have been forgotten by him. And he's gonna say something so remarkable to them. That first word is going to be, come and listen to me and let me comfort you. If the first 39 chapters, there was an ember of hope for salvation, as I said, now, now he has said in chapters 40 and following, that ember has turned into a raging fire. And it is in the hearth of the home and it is gonna warm you. So in chapter 40, the first thing that God does when he wants to comfort his people who think he has forgotten him is he tells us that our view of him is way too small. And go back again, it's the major theme of the whole book and we're gonna really see it come to life now in these chapters. But this is counterintuitive, I think. I thought about this all week. I was thinking, it's counterintuitive, right? Because if I think that God has forgotten me then I would think that what might comfort me is for God to condescend. And by that, it doesn't mean to belittle us. Condescend is just a theological term, which means to lower yourself, right? To come down to the level of the one whom you want to engage with, right? And so the thing that I would find comforting, at least in my mind, right, is if God would condescend and come down and, and sort of be small, right, and say, I'm going to be small and next to you and right here, and I'm going to show you that I'm with you. I I haven't left you, right? I'm right here. Would you you agree that that sounds kind of comforting to us? Right? And it's not that God won't do that, but the first thing that God is going to do is he's going to do the exact opposite. He's going to say, I am incomparably huge. And that fact is going to give you great comfort if you'll let it. This is is really the message of the whole chapter today, right? Is that God means to comfort his people through his incomparable majesty. God means to comfort you, friend, if you think you've been forgotten by him. He means to comfort you by telling you how incomparably huge and powerful and mighty and perfect he is. He wants to raise your esteem of him. He wants to raise your thinking about him. He wants to raise your affections about him because they have been too low, they are too small. And he says, you will be comforted when you begin to understand this. Now, let's look together at verses one and two. So chapter 40, verses one and two. Excuse me, I'm still kind of getting over something. You can hear it, can't you? My apologies. So here's what he says in verses one and two. Again, these great words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And now just go down to verse 11. Okay, so that's verses one and two, but go down to verse 11 because he's gonna kind of complete this section with this thought. He, God, will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Okay, so there what he's saying in verses one and two, you see the closeness, you see the shepherd metaphor that he says, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pick you up like you're a baby lamb and I'm gonna hold you close to my chest. I'm gonna make sure you're safe, I'm gonna make sure you're good. And he gives us this beautiful imagery to say, I, I'm gonna comfort you, I want to comfort you. But he's gonna tell us something else to follow what he says in verses three through five because he's gonna tell us something about how he's really, like the, the, the real depth of the comfort he wants to bring us. So he says this in verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, key in on verse five there because it's really the key to this whole section. What he's saying is, look, I'm telling you in verse one, comfort, like Isaiah, comfort my people. Speak a word of tenderness and comfort to them. In fact, give them the metaphor of the shepherd holding the little lamb. Like, this is what I want you to do. But he's going to say, how will I comfort them? What will be the content of their comfort? And he says it in verse 5. If verse 1 is the command, speak a word of comfort, then verse 5 is the declaration of how that comfort will come. It will come when the glory of the Lord is revealed. Now, if you've been around the Bible a little bit, one of the things that, that should stand out to you as I say that is that the glory of the Lord has never been a comfort throughout the history of the Bible. When you read about the glory of the Lord, it's when the glory of the Lord manifests itself or when God shows up in a place and reveals his glory, do people tend to go, wow, that was really comforting? They tend to fall on their face because they're afraid they're gonna die. They're gonna say, one like you cannot be near one like me. I mean, just go back to Isaiah chapter six at the beginning of our study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a revelation of God's glory and he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. I am going to die. God sends an angel with a pair of tongs, with a coal and touches it to his lips and says, here, you've been purified by fire. The glory of the Lord is scary. It's frightening, and yet here he's telling us that it's the glory of the Lord that will ultimately be our comfort. It's his greatness, his grandness, his otherness, his power. That's what's going to bring us comfort. How? We'll get to that, all right? But first, we need to do a little investigating of what that glory looks like. I mean, we just need to spend some time pondering it. And then I want to return to these verses and I want to show you how the glory of the Lord is no longer a thing to cause us to be frightened so that we that we might die, but now it becomes a thing that causes us to be comforted when we think we're forgotten. Because that's a big do you see what a big shift that is? Church, do you see what a big shift that is? All right. Three of you see it. That's awesome. We'll keep going. All right. Just remember this. You may try to warm yourself at the fire of other things, but they're all false fires, okay? They they have no heat to warm you, right? They're like the fireplace on your TV when you click it on and go like, hey, look at that. It makes the room look real pretty, right? There's no heat. You can only warm yourself at the fire of God's incomparable majesty. That's where the heat is. That's where the warmth is. All right. So look at what he says now. So he's gonna comfort us with a vision of his incomparable majesty. And the first thing he's gonna say is be comforted because all the power that exists belongs to me. So look at verses six through eight. It says, a voice says, cry. And then Isaiah responds, I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, now, in other places, like when you see the, this idea of the grass and the flower and it withering and you got blowing on it, it's a, it's a word of judgment, right? But here it's not meant to be a word of judgment. It's just meant to be a word of reality that we are very temporary and God is eternal. That he's saying, I am so powerful I'm so powerful that not only am I infinite while you're temporary and finite, not only is that the case, but when I speak, whatever I speak becomes an eternal decree. I want you to think about that for a minute because what God is saying is I have such weight of being in myself that when I say something, one, I never speak something mistakenly. Like I never start to get words out of my mouth and say, oh, whoa, 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 I wish I had not said that. God speaks perfectly, always, everything he intends to speak, and then when he speaks it, it becomes something that dictates what is true for all eternity, for all existence, just because he said it. Now think about how different that is than us. How many times have you spoken something hoping you might cause it to happen and it did not happen, right? I mean, I have a two-year-old. This is my world right now, right? Come here. No, no, here, here please hear, right? Just looking at me like, you got nothing, buddy. Like, do you have candy or something? Because then maybe, right? I mean, like, our words, they don't make things happen. God is saying the second I speak it, like my speaking and my, and my bringing something into existence are two separate things, right? If I speak it and then I like work really hard, I might be able to bring the thing I spoke about into existence, I might be able to, right? The second God speaks something, it exists and is forever an eternal decree, never to be undone. That's the power of the spoken word, right? Just go back to creation. How did God create the universe? He spoke it into existence. He just said, let there be light, let there be morning, let there be night, let there be, you know, and so on and so forth, and it was. With God, speaking and doing are one and the same. That's the immense weightiness of his very nature and his power. The second thing he says, look at verse 12 now. Skip down a few verses. And he says this. This is one of my favorites. I go back to this all the time. Verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? who has measured the spirit of the lord so if before in verse 6 he was telling us like i have immense weight of being now he's saying i am just immense i am i am huge beyond i am beyond your comprehension however great a thought you think you have thought about me it's lower than what i actually am he is immense now he says, I hold, and he gives us an image, right? He, again, this is him condescending because it's not as if he holds this much water and not a drop more, okay? So even this is below what he actually is. But he gives us words to help us understand and an image, and he says, I hold all the waters in all the earth in the hollow of my hand. All right, so I did a little research. You wanna know how much water's on the earth? This much. 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth. That's 326 with 18 zeros after it. That is all the water in every, I don't know how they figured this out. All the water in every river and every stream and every ocean, all of it. And God declares that 326 million trillion gallons of water can be held in the hollow of his hand. Now, how foolish are we When we think, you know, that thing that needs to happen in my life, I'm gonna try and do that by my own power because my hand can surely hold a lot, right? So just to illustrate this, right? Just to illustrate this, I brought this along. By the way, I was gonna do a milk jug and my wife said, no, no, honey. Presentation matters. (laughs) So this is a gallon of water. This is one gallon. God says he holds 326 million trillion of these In his hand. Now let's just, just for the sake of, because it's fun, let's just see. Some of you are like, I've got bigger hands than Trent, but it doesn't really matter. So there we go. Hold on. I brought my measuring spoon. Yeah, a tablespoon, I'm good. (laughs) I mean, a whole tablespoon, right? It's fantastic. God is, now my hand's wet. I don't know what to do with that. Didn't think that through. Didn't bring a towel. God is declaring. I mean, just the next time you think to yourself, I'm pretty strong. I can make things happen. You know, should I rely on God and seek Him and ask Him? Or should I just accomplish it myself? Just look at your hand. Would you please? At best, you hold a little more than a tablespoon. Water in your hand, and God declares that I hold 326 million trillion gallons of water. And again, He's condescending just to give us something understandable. That no, I can't comprehend. Can you comprehend that number? I cannot comprehend that number, right? And He's like, Oh, it's more than that. He is immense. Now, look at what He says next about His power, verse 21 and 22. In verse 21, He says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth (coughs) and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. What he's saying there is my power is not, it's not sourced from anywhere. My power comes from me. Now, I, don't, I don't have to like the iron you plug in to get hot and then after a while it's got enough power from the source that it can be hot and go, woo, all right, that's hot, that can do some work, right? God is saying, no, 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 no. I am the source of my own power and I distribute power as I please But all power belongs to me. Like when we use the term God is omnipotent, that's another theological term that we use a lot. He's omnipotent, which means all powerful. A lot of times we think that means he has a lot of power, right? It doesn't just mean he has a lot of power. It means that all power that exists, if you picture the universe as a closed system, inside of which there is a certain amount of power, X amount of power, right? He possesses all of X and anyone who has any power, it's because he chose to give some of it to them. Whether they acknowledge that it came from him or not, it's all his and he distributes it. It's not as if to say, oh, he's got a ton and other people have a little bit, but it's somehow their own. He's saying, no, 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 it's all mine and I distribute freely as I choose. Does that make sense? That's what it means when we say God is omnipotent. He possesses all power. And that's what he's saying here. And he's gonna say the same thing. Now look at verses 23 and 24. God, he says, who brings to nothing, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. Right? like if, you, if you've ever felt like someone who was a bad leader right, had authority over you, someone who was taking advantage of you or making poor decisions and it affected your life, you've recognized how long it can feel like that a, that a bad leader is in power. And what God is saying here is all the rulers, all the most powerful people in the world are completely subject to my whims. I declare what will happen in all of human history and everything else happens according to how I design it. I make everything, I determine the course of this whole story and these rulers may think that they're telling their own story, but I promise you, they're telling mine. They are as subject to me as the dirt is to the wind. The dust never says to the wind, you're gonna blow but I'm gonna stay right here, right? The wind blows and the dust moves and God declares that's how he is with the greatest, strongest, most powerful rulers in all the world, with all the political leverage and all the money and all the power and all the armies at their disposal, God says, they are no more than dust to my wind. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely do they take root. I blow and they are done. So as if God's power is not enough to cause us to see his incomparable majesty, now he's gonna tell us less about his knowledge, but he's gonna tell us a few things about his knowledge which are remarkable. So look at verses 13 and 14. He says, "'Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, "'or what man shows him his counsel? "'Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? "'Who taught him the path of justice?' And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. So essentially he's saying now, if he said, be comforted because all power that exists is my power. The next thing he's going to say is be comforted because there's nothing I do not know and nothing I do not see. Nothing escapes my attention. So the first thing in verse 13 that we see is he's saying, "I I don't ever ask advice from anyone. God never learns anything, right? Think about you're learning something now. And you're gonna learn something again when you walk out of here. And you're gonna be learning all day, every day. You're acquiring new knowledge, right? That happens all the time. You read a book, you have a conversation. You learn something about somebody that's a friend of yours that you didn't know about them before. You spend your entire life learning new things. And God declares, I've never learned anything. I've always known everything that there is to know. Can you fathom that? He says, that's how I am. I don't, I don't have to say, like, hey, I'm wondering, you know, like, that's an interesting fact. I never knew that. God never says that. He knows all that there is to know. And then here's the real, this is the one that always causes me to go, whoa. Because he's declaring then in verse 13 and then in 14 afterwards when he said, I, I have all the knowledge that there is to have. I never seek counsel from anyone. I never have to ask advice. He then says, and I always execute the path of justice. In other words, what he's saying is, I always make the right judgment, which is wisdom, right? How often, I mean, we've all known someone who's really smart, but doesn't seem to make good decisions in life, right? That person who's like, man, they got a lot of information. They got a lot of knowledge in their head. But when it comes down to actually figuring out how to live life in such a way that's like good, they just, they just seem to miss, miss the ball sometimes, right? And God is saying, I, I have perfect knowledge, And also, I always perfectly apply that knowledge in every situation. There's never a moment where I make an unwise choice. Everything I do is what should be done at the exact time it should be done, in the exact way it should be done. Now, just think about how different that is than us. I mean, how many times have I had all the information I needed about a situation as a leader? and been faced with a decision, and even in spite of having all the information, still not known what to do. Have you been there, leaders? Really, I, I, I have all the, all the facts about the situation. I don't think there's any piece of information I'm missing, and I still don't know what the wise path is, right? And I know the one thing I can't do is nothing. I have to do something, and so what do you do? You make a choice, and you say, by faith, you say, Lord, help me. I'm I'm trusting and if I'm wrong, help me to walk it back. I'll be humble, I'll respond, I'll change but I don't know what to do and I gotta make a choice here. And so what you make a choice, right? And that's normal life. That's normal leadership and God doesn't ever have that moment. God never has the moment where he's got all the info and he says, but I'm not real sure what the right pathway is here. He knows it perfectly. So he says, Be comforted, because I am immensely powerful. Be comforted, because I possess all knowledge. I see everything, and I know everything. Now, in all this conversation and discussion about God's incomparable majesty, there's one question that really remains unanswered, and it's how exactly does this comfort us when we think we're forgotten by God, right? So, for instance, you can say, well, Trent, God is, you know, Incomparably majestic, he's got all this power, he's got all this knowledge, and that's all well and good, but I still don't see. I mean, perhaps you even feel a little comforted by it, but you don't even know why. You're like, why does that comfort me when I think perhaps God's forgotten me? I'm I'm in exile, I'm in a tough situation. Because you could argue, I mean, someone could argue, right? The fact that God is this immense makes him more likely to not think about me, this little speck of dust, right? I mean, why should I think as this, I, I'm, I'm like a grasshopper is what the text said, right? Why should I think that God being this in, incomparably majestic should comfort me? Perhaps I should think, there's, why would God care at all about me? And the answer to that question that Isaiah is gonna give us is back in verses three through five again. I want you to look back now because he's gonna say something remarkable to us. Again, remember, remember that in all of human history, God's glory being revealed has been more a scary thing than it has been a comforting thing. But something has changed where he says in verse three through five, now look, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the first thing he's gonna say there is, if God is coming to reveal his glory, your job is to put sin away, right? Repent be humble, acknowledge before God where you've done wrong, prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And then he's gonna say something else. Verse four, every valley shall be lifted up. Okay, so now we're no longer talking about something I can do, are we? Can I make a valley be lifted up? No, he's saying every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So he said, you prepare yourself with repentance and making righteous choices, putting away sin. God is gonna do a work to prepare the way for his own coming. And then in verse five, again, we see it, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Now, here's the key thing to understand. In the New Testament, these verses are said to be applied to one specific individual, Verses three and four, a voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. And in the New Testament, in every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are told that those words are a prophecy from Isaiah that are speaking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus, right? He came to prepare the people to hear the message that Jesus would speak. So follow the logic now. If verses three and four were about, or we're told in the New Testament specifically are about John the Baptist and what he would do, then verse five is about who would come after John the Baptist. So who is verse five about? It's about Jesus. How is the glory of the Lord going to be revealed so that all flesh might see it according to Isaiah chapter 40 verse five? How? Through the incarnation of God's son, Jesus Christ. So now go back to our question, right? Because here's what the incarnation is. Here's what the cross is. Here's what the resurrection is. It is a once for all declaration that the glory of God would be wrapped up in humanity in the Son, who said, when you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? And the disciples say, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son, like he is glorious with all the glory of the father. So the glory of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. And because Jesus is the perfect servant of God, perfectly righteous, now the glory of God comes to us in a way that we no longer have to hide in fear trembling. Now the glory of God is revealed to protect us and provide for us in the Son so that we might be granted his righteousness, clothed in it through his sacrifice. And now the glory of God is no longer something that we think will condemn us because we are unrighteous and he is holy. Now because of the work of the Son, it is the glory of God that comes to us and we say we can be ushered into the presence of that glory because of what the Son has done. The glory of God The incomparable majesty of God becomes an incomparable comfort because of Jesus, where the glory of God has been revealed finally and for all. And in a way that declares that I will use my incomparable majesty to protect you and provide for you and redeem you. Do you see it, church? That's how you go from thinking about the incomparable majesty of God as something that would cause you to tremble and shake and fear and know that you are other than him and could never be like him and never have any hope of being received by him to seeing the incomparable majesty of God as something that brings you immense comfort because one day you will be brought home into that majesty, into that glory, and it will be because Jesus, who is the glorious one, suffered and died on your behalf to purchase your redemption. And Isaiah is pointing it to us. So friends, here's, here's the question. Right? Do you think you've been forgotten by God? Do you think you've been forgotten by God? If you do, you need two things. One, you need to raise your view of him. You need to not lower your view and make him more relatable. You need to raise your view. You need him to be higher and more majestic. You can never get your view of God high enough. Keep raising it. Keep raising it. Seek after an understanding of God that says you are mysterious and wonderful and beyond me. And then you need to cling to the cross of Jesus, which gives you access to that glory to that majesty and says no longer will it strike you down but you will be ushered into it because he has revealed his glory in the sun. My friends come and warm yourself at the fire of God's incomparable majesty. It's the only fire that can give you the warmth you need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. You have revealed the glory of the Father. No one is like you. No one and I pray today, Lord, if anything has been done, may it be that your name has been lifted high, that we have thought higher thoughts about you than we have previously. We love you. You are incomparably majestic, you are merciful. And we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for making a path for us, Father, through the Son so that your majesty might be something we can approach, come to with boldness, you've told us in your word, to come before your throne with boldness. So we trust that everything you've said about that is true, and so we come. Would you receive our praises now? May they be, may this song now in a way be a solidifying work for us as a church family where it just solidifies what we have heard and now we respond to it with a song saying you are incomparably great.